Amen. Well, friends, we are back in our study of Acts. Last week we we had uh, the privilege of having um, a couple of our missionaries, the Latham sharing, and uh, it was a great um, time to be able to hear what they're doing in Brazil and what God is doing through them. But now we are back in our study of Acts. It seems like we've been in Acts for about six years now, is that right? <laughs> but that's okay. You know, we're going through it and we go passage by passage and What we continue to see is those themes that come through so clearly that it truly is about God uh, and His church moving forward. It is about church on a mission. It's the unstoppable mission of the church. And so it's been an interesting book to study. I hope you've been appreciating it, reading ahead and seeing what it is that we're going to be studying on each Sunday because it's really a unique book, right? It's filled with history of stories of great interesting characters that we see that God brings onto the scene to teach us many things. But we have such a unique connection with this book because we are the church, and this really reveals to us the beginnings of the church. It is a new thing, a new creation, and Paul and the apostles are speaking life into it and doing miracles to authenticate the fact that it's the power of God and not anybody else's. And uh, here in Acts 19, we are in verses 21 to 41 today, and we're picking up towards the end of Paul's third missionary journey when following him along, and we see how the, the gospel has been going first to the Jew, but now, of course, to the Gentile. But we've been seeing some very unique and interesting people and also events, things that are happening in the life of the apostles, and I hope that you can see two things so far. First of all, it clearly is the power of the Holy Spirit who is doing all of the work and the leading, right? And that's very clear because that still applies to us today, that we cannot live the Christian life without allowing the Holy Spirit to do His thing. Is that right? So as we give room and environment in our hearts and minds for the Spirit to, to work out His fruit in us, That will be then attractive to the world as we share the gospel and as we live it out as well. But here in this passage, we also see the fact that that God does some interesting things through very unique circumstances and that it was not an easy time. The apostles didn't have an easy time of it. They fought um, rebellion. They fought instigators all along the way. They They fought leaders in here. In this passage, you're going to see that they fought the people, the sort of the blue-collar workers, those who were making their living in the city of Ephesus off of the sinfulness, and you'll see what I get to, in worshiping idols, in their specific idol, the uh, goddess Diana, as the Romans called them, or the the goddess of Artemis. And um, we're going to see how that unfolds and what that looks like, but they're basically is a riot that happens. That's really what our story is about. There's a riot that comes up, and you'll see exactly what the reasons are and how that riot comes to be and then what happens from that. But the real point of today's story and message you're going to see centers around the issue of idolatry. Now, not a fun thing to discuss, right? And that's one of the things I was telling our team earlier is when you believe in going through books of the Bible as we do here, There are themes and topics that come through it. 
but you can never get away from maybe those topics you wouldn't want to teach on because we believe in teaching the whole counsel of God, right? And so this morning we happen to be faced square in the face with this idea of idolatry. So we're going to see what it meant to the to the early Christians, to the world at that time, especially in Ephesus. But what does that look like for us? What are those things that we make as idols in our lives? And how foolish it truly is if you take a step back and you just kind of look at those idols in your lives, those things that you put before God, whatever that is for you, how foolish it is to give it any time or energy or attention for nothing compares to the one true God, the creator of all things. And so we're going to look at Acts 19, it's 21 through 41. Before that, I want to share this story. This is um, a story that's um, recounted by Henry Nouwen in his book, The Wounded Healer. He tells this story, it's an ancient story from India, and it goes like this. Four royal brothers decided each to master a special ability. So time went by, and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned on their own. So one said, I have mastered a science by which I can take the bone of any creature, and I can create the flesh that goes with it. So the second brother said, I know how to grow the creature's skin and hair, as if there is flesh on its bones. The third brother said, I'm able to create its limbs if I have that flesh and skin and hair. And the fourth brother said, brother said, I know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. So thereupon the brothers journeyed out into the jungle to find a bone so they could demonstrate to one another their great special powers. So as fate would have it, the bone they found, which they did not know, was the bone of a lion. One added flesh to the bone. The second grew the hide and hair. The third completed it with matching limbs. And the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, coming to life, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on its creator's killed them all, and then vanished contentedly into the jungle. What's the moral of the story? We too have the capacity to create what can devour us. Goals and dreams can consume us. Possessions and property can turn and destroy us. Unless we first seek God's kingdom and His righteousness and allow Him to breathe into what we make of life. It was St. Augustine who said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshiped. Last time we were in Acts, we talked about this idea of trying to use God for our own purposes. And this morning we're going to look at in Acts 19 and then actually a passage in Isaiah 44 that really explains it. You'll see how cool that works out. That it was this idea of idol worship that had its grip on Ephesus and is really what led to this riot. So Acts 19, 21 to 41. Let's remember as we read this in the context 
that Paul was finishing up his, um, his missionary journey, this journey in Ephesus. He had already set the vision for what was next. He has sent a couple of the apostles on their way to go to other cities, but Paul had in mind that he wanted to go to Jerusalem. That's where he wanted to end up, and then to Rome. And he was bringing the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world there. But he determined, and by the Holy Spirit leading him, to stay in Ephesus longer. He was there about three years. And so he stayed in Ephesus. But remember, we had talked about this previously, that Ephesus, right, it was a huge city. There was a very vibrant economy. But the economy and the, and the culture, and this is important to know, was based on the temple of Artemis. All right? I'm going to show a picture of the temple so you have an idea. This is a rendering of basically what we believe from archaeological finds and everything. I think there's part of it that still exists. What the temple of Artemis looked like and why it's important is because this temple of Artemis was dedicated to the goddess of Artemis, or as the Romans knew her, the goddess Diana. And I'm going to show you a picture of this beautiful goddess. What do you think of that? It was actually known to be very, they thought that she was beautiful, but it was this ugly, ugly rendering and picture of this goddess that they believed fell from the sky. It had something to do in Greek mythology with Zeus and falling to the sky. A lot of historians believe that perhaps, we can't prove it, there was some kind of meteor that hit there at some point, and then they believed that it was from the gods, and it had some kind of shape and so they thought that it looked like this woman and she was the goddess of diana and so they began to worship her and she was the goddess not only of love but of fertility and nature and there were temple prostitutes and there were those who were selling idols trinkets made from silver and wood and other things and that's kind of where we pick up this story here because Paul and others have an encounter with, um, with these idol makers. So the whole city, it's important in context to realize, the whole city was really centered on, in its economy and culture, this idea of worshiping um, the goddess of Artemis and in the temple. The temple actually also um, served as a sort of bank, and there were a lot of uh, people that had sort of money stored there. So you can go as like an early form of a bank and they would go. So there was worship happening there of the goddess and, and uh, there were all these people that were making a lot of money, making their living off of the fact that people came from far and wide to worship this goddess. Especially there was an annual festival where they sort of made most of their money and scholars have likened it to what we might think Mardi Gras might be like. It was that sort of atmosphere, and of course they made a ton of money. And so the fact that now that Paul and the apostles had brought the gospel, and people were being transformed by it, and lives were being changed, and remember from last time we talked about how there were some believers in Christ who had kind of held on to their sorcery and magic books until there was that point where they they were convicted by what had happened, remember? And then they had a big book burning, and the idea was that this was happening more and more. So you can imagine that the idol makers in town and all those businesses that were all tied to the temple, they were starting to get concerned 
that as the way, as they called it, these followers of Jesus, as they grew, they were smashing their idols, they were burning their magic books, and turning away from that. If you can imagine, that wasn't good for business, right? And so that's, and you know, if people try to take money away from you or your livelihood, well, you're going to do something about it. So that's what's happening here. So look at Acts 19 in uh, 21 to 41. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. See, that's his vision. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, meaning he got all the craftsmen together, with the workmen in similar trades, all the businessmen. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Sounds preposterous to them, right? And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. First of all, you can see they don't really care about the temple or the goddess. Really, they care about the money, right? If they could make money in the destruction of the temple, then they would do that. Right, But they, what, what he was really getting at was that this is getting at our pockets. He says in verse 28, when, um, Luke says this, he says, When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. They were trying to protect Paul, see? Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Can you picture it? This this theater held about twenty to 30,000 people. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, listen to this, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So over and over again, for two hours, they shouted that out. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's trying to like kind of quell the riot. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. 
If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, then the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So it took an unnamed clerk from the city to kind of put some sense into the people and say, we're in trouble of kind of spurring up this riot. We really have no defense for it other than it's putting a dent in your business. And so he kind of stopped that. But the whole point is that you see what led to this riot. Everywhere Paul and the apostles went, they met with opposition. They met with opposition, but why? Why was it? It's because the power of the gospel will change the world. The gospel upends people's lives, doesn't it? It turns people's lives around it. It, of course, transforms people. So people were coming to know Jesus as Savior. Being saved, as we would say, right? And that's what was changing the culture and the climate of the city of Ephesus. I think that's so important. I do believe that there is time in the life of a Christian and in the, the, um, the moving forward of the church to perhaps protest something legally, to send word to uh, representatives in government, right? To do things that we recognize perhaps in our government, our culture, that is leading us to do something against the law because we first have to, right? We first have to honor God and His laws. But I think the main thing this is teaching us at this point is that here, what is truly changing the culture is not that they were trying to change laws or anything. You know what they were doing? They were changing lives by sharing the gospel. Because listen, when people's lives are changed and they then make a profession of faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, as it says, remember the Philippian jailer? How am I saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That was happening all over. And he even said it. And Demetrius is like, so many people are are joining the way. It's changing the fabric of the city. Isn't that what we want to see happen? Here in our community, in New Jersey and around the world? So what is the main way that God is changing the world? Or wants to change the world and desires to change the world? It starts with the heart. And so we simply are, as we say, the hands and feet of Christ, going and sharing the good news, the gospel of Christ, the hope that is in Him. That will change the world one heart and one mind at a time. Are you with me? That's, isn't that amazing? So that's what was happening. That's how the culture was being changed. They didn't go there to try to destroy the temple or knock down the um, all of the idols. Right? The idea is if they brought the gospel from the inside out it would then change the culture and eventually they would do that themselves you see that so that's something we want to make sure that we um we we do not miss that is so important but here's what i'd like to do for our remaining time just 10 15 minutes together i actually want to turn our attention to a passage in the old testament it's in isaiah 44 it will be up on the screen for you 
but you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 44. We're going to be using the NIV version this time for this passage. But it's so amazing how this works, right? We know that when we look at Scripture that um, we are to interpret Scripture first by other Scriptures, right? Because certainly we don't believe there's going to be any kind of conflict there truly in its sense and in its word. And so this happens to be one of these stories in the life of the early church with this riot and this mayhem that happens because of the idol worship and Demetrius getting all of the idol makers together where we can truly see the foolishness of worshiping idols. And so Isaiah the prophet and God talk about this in Isaiah 44. So here's what I like to do. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it slowly. But what I'd like you to do is sort of picture what's happening here. See what is being said in this passage in Isaiah 44 in context of Acts 19. Does that make sense? So in context of what we just discussed, what was going on in Ephesus, and what Paul and the apostles had to deal with, and how things were changing in that city because of the spread of the gospel, look at what it says in Isaiah 44 about the foolishness of worshiping idols. Right? These idol makers were so concerned because their livelihood was in jeopardy. But their whole life was based upon worshiping idols, and propagating the worship of the idol, the goddess of Artemis. Isaiah 44, 8-23. I pick up in the middle of verse 8. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing and the things that they treasure are worthless those who would speak up for them are blind they are ignorant to their own shame who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing people who do that will be put to shame such craftsmen are only human beings let them all come together and take their stand does that sound familiar they will be brought down to terror and shame the blacksmith takes a tool and works it works with it in the coals he shapes an idol with hammers he forges it with the might of his arm but he gets hungry and loses his strength he drinks no water and he grows faint the carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker he roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses he shapes it into human form human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine he cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak he let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and then the rain made it grow it is used as fuel for burning, and some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. And he makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. 
He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? So remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your skins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. An amazing, an amazing passage in light of what we just read in Acts 19, isn't it? Where he says, even he says, let them come and gather and complain about it as the blacksmith and the carpenter make their idols of metal and iron and wood. You see, there's all different kinds of of writing styles, of literature, and of grammar in the Scriptures. This happens to be what we call satirical writing. You know what satire is? It's sort of like a commentary on something where it makes fun of it. It sort of exaggerates it to show the foolishness of people. That's really what's happening here. That we see that God, through Isaiah, is basically saying, how foolish is it that people create an idol out of metal or a piece of wood that I created, says God. See, what it's doing is it is is perverting creation. For God created everything, right? And so what do we really do? And here's where we're starting to show the application to ourselves. Hopefully you were kind of thinking that through already. But don't we create idols for ourselves? Don't we make idols? First, you'll notice that he's basically saying that even those who create idols, they have human limitations. Like they're going to try to create an idol, but they're the created one. They're not God. See, even those of us who are really good at making idols, I can raise my hand. How many of you are really good at making idols in your life? Yeah, you are. There's only a couple of us. Thank God the rest of you are here with us. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> of course, we all know that, right? But those of us who are especially good at making idols in our lives, we still fall short because of our human limitations. You see the, the satire here that's going on? He says, and also secondly, idols are nothing more than creationed, creations fashioned by the best of human instruments. No matter what we use to create our idols, no matter what technology we use, 
or even beyond that, people can be idols in our lives. Dreams and visions and hopes and goals which can be good in and of themselves can become idols if we put them in the place of God. But see, even as we create and fashion idols in our lives, whatever we use to do that, we're limited ourselves because we're creations, not the Creator. We play Creator, right? But we can use the best tools we know to create our idols to make them safe, to make them secure, to make them secret. But still, it is us, fallen inferior creatures, using, using, using inferior instruments and tools to create inferior gods. But we also know that idols are limited by the materials from which they're made, no matter how good we try and we think we are, to create something in our lives that we can look to other than God. Right? To bring peace, to bring pleasure, to bring prosperity. No matter what instruments we use to create it, whatever it is that content, and you can just fill in the blank in your own life, Whatever that idol is, whatever content makes up that idol, whether it's something you see or hear or do or say or places that you go, no matter what we use, no matter what the materials we use, just like the idol makers use their metal and their iron and their wood, it's corruptible and it is corrupting to our lives. It's been said this way, the pursuit of idolatry is irrational and leads to irrationality. Idolatrous people will not be able to respond appropriately because their eyes are blinded. And that's really what it says, right? So idols cannot be of any profit to us. Yes, they were selling idols, Demetrius and his fellow workers. Idols that were made specifically to the goddess Artemis. But in the end, they were corruptible idols. They were idols that were corrupting them and the city and the culture and the economy. Those idols are bound by creation. It's just foolishness to think that you can fashion an idol, he says in Isaiah, out of a tree. He's like saying, who made the tree? God made the tree. And then he tells this funny little story, you can picture it, just saying, here's the carpenter, and he cuts down a tree, He uses half of it for good things, right? He uses it to warm the fire and and he warms himself and he cooks his meat over it and he eats. And then it's like he's saying in this writing, right? He's saying, what should I do with the rest of this wood? I'll make an idol out of it and I'll worship it. And I'll say, save me. And Isaiah is like saying, how foolish is that? But if we are honest with ourselves... And we take a step back and look at the idols in our lives. Is it not not only irrational, but foolishness that we were to think that we can set up anything in our lives before God that will be greater than Him? No. If we think about it now, we would all to a person admit, of course not. There is nothing and no one greater than God. But don't we still, and won't we still, after we leave this place today, continue to worship our idols? I end with these these final thoughts. 
It says in verse 20 of that passage in Isaiah, he says, shall I bow down to a block of wood? Right? That's like right the satirical commentary. Is that really what's happening? Then he says in verse 20, such a person feeds on ashes. What's the idea there? Feeding on ashes. He's really still talking about that piece of wood. You burn it all up. If you burn a piece of wood, can you consume those ashes? Is there any nutrition in eating or consuming ashes? The idea is that everything has been burned away. Anything that might have been of any nutritious value or anything, it's all burned up. There's no value left. It is all ashes. And he says, such a person who creates idols, from our perspective, any idols that we create, we are now the idol makers in our story. See that? And that's, that's tough to hear. But he says, anyone who does that consumes ashes. Ashes have no nutritional value whatsoever. Now, I think we all are guilty of eating lots of things throughout the day that have absolutely no nutritional value, right? And we fill up with that. The next time that you're going to grab that piece of food, think about it. I might as well be eating ashes because it's not doing any good. Worshiping an idol, it's folly, it's foolishness. We are creating something in our lives and allowing it, allowing it, to dictate and control us. We are setting it up before God. But ultimately, ultimately, we are our own idol, right? We want to be God and worship ourselves. We might not say that, but the bottom line is that's pride. That's selfishness, right? That is really at the root of our sinfulness is that we want to be God. Is that, is that not where sin started? With Satan, right? With Lucifer. Wanting to be God. With Adam and Eve. It's all from the beginning. We see it and we know it. But it's still present in our humanity. In our sinfulness. That we want to set ourselves up as God and worship ourselves and do those things. Create our idols because then we can control it. See, in our pridefulness, we think that we're still in control. But don't we know that Scripture says that if we have given our lives to Christ, that we are no longer our own? But we are bought with the blood of Christ. And we always remember that. If we are the ones that feed on ashes, then we are not bringing any nutrition to our souls because we are worshiping false and corruptible idols. If we go long enough with consuming things that have no nutritional value, where does that lead to? It leads to death. Physically and spiritually as well. Finally, you know, we're talking about this, this city of Ephesus and the temple and the goddess of Artemis. You remember what it says in Revelation 2 about the letters to the seven churches? Remember the first letter, what church that was written to? Church in Ephesus. And do you remember what Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was saying that He commended them for doing a lot of good things? So evidently, the church became really solid and was known for actually keeping uh, false teaching out of its churches because they recognized the more and more that all those 
but new Christians and believers were burning their magical books and destroying their idols and were sort of changing the culture of Ephesus, right? The whole thing that started that riot, the more that that was happening, they recognized they needed to keep that out of the church. But what did Jesus call them on? That they forgot what? Their first love. They had forgotten the passion and zeal they had for the Lord and became content but where does that lead to? It'll lead them right back into idol worship. You see? So even though he commended them for doing such great things, he still said, you have forgotten your first love. And that's really a call to us as well. That we have to be careful. We have to watch for ourselves what it is that we're consuming spiritually. That there is eternal value and nutrition involved so that we are learning and growing and serving together like we say all the time and not putting up these false idols that only lead to decay and eventually to death the passage in isaiah ends with this it says just in last verse 23 can you put verse 23 back up after he just goes to his whole satirical thing about you know, fashioning idols out of a block of wood and, and worshiping this block of wood, how silly and foolish it sounds. At the end, in verse 23 of this passage, he says, So just sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, mountains and forests and trees. Now look, contrast that to what all of the people in Ephesus were doing, all of those idol makers, what were they doing? It says for two hours they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine that? They were in such an uproar that for two hours straight they were just shouting that phrase, great is Artemis in Ephesus. Great is Artemis in Ephesus. But don't we do better? To shout aloud praises to the one true God. Where it says, sing for joy, you heavens. You might have a group of artisans that are shouting, great as Artemis, and trying to stir everybody up. Remember this, it's a chant. It's their chant. And it's like here it's saying, yeah, you can gather and you can create your idols. But you know what? All of creation worships the Creator. So we might try to play the role of creator in creating idols in our lives. But we need to remember who the true creator is and not distort the beauty of his creation. Because if we do, right, it's like we burn it all in front of us and we then are consuming ashes. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at how your word works together. We thank you. We thank you for the challenging words in both the story in, in, in Acts, but also the challenging words in, in Isaiah. Father, we thank You for that call, that call to come back to You with our hearts, that we would not set up idols before us, that if we do and we recognize them, God, give us the courage and the strength to cast them down before You, that through Your power, not our own, but through Your power, they would be broken that we'd be able to sweep the dust and the ashes aside. And Lord, that we would continue always in all things to put You first.
For you're the one who deserves to be worshipped. All of creation, all of your creation is to worship you. Father God, be merciful towards us as we falter and fail over and over again. But Lord, thank you that you are a God, not only of mercy, but a God of grace, giving us those things we do not deserve. Father God, we are so very thankful for that. Most of all, we are thankful for your grace and that it leads us to salvation. For it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which we are saved. By no other God, by no other idol, by no other philosophy or way of man, are we reconnected to you, our Creator. We thank you then most of all for Jesus, for his shed blood, his body on the cross, that in him as we look to him, we worship him and him alone, and recognize that we cannot create anything that can save ourselves but only the created one. Only the fact that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, the only one who could take away our sins. We thank you, Father God, for creating us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for creating us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your amazing creation and creating us and knowing us and loving us from the inside out. God, forgive us for setting up idols before you in our lives. Help us each in our own, no matter what they may be, to cast them down at your feet and to recognize that you then call us to stand firm in you, to stand firm on the promises of your word and to then go and share the gospel that we might change the culture and change the world one heart at a time. We thank you that we get to be a part of your plan and your purposes. Give us the strength now to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.